Expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer feared, if his protection is gone and your enemies are near, if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake, break, and fall, if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all, rise up. No matter if the prize is high and the new abolitionist radio on the Black Hawk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate an issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas, with new abolitionist and activist Johanna Nelaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who helped combat it. Today is the July 5th 2017 broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio. We are less than two months away from the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March on Washington, D.C., August 19th. We need to start acting like it. Yesterday, people of all stripes celebrated America's emancipation from the British crown. Ironic, considering that thanks to the 13th Amendment, convict leasing, and modern mass incarceration, black Time is growing short, and there is so much work to do. On this day in history, 1950, U.S. suffered the first fatality in the Korean War near Sojong, South Korea. Private Kenneth Shadrick, a 19-year-old infantryman from Skidden Fork, West Virginia, became the first American reportedly killed in the Korean War. It is estimated that up to 57,000 Americans lost their lives and as many as 3.5 million Koreans were killed. Also, this weekend marks the 100th anniversary of one of the most brutal and shameful episodes of mass violence in American history, dubbed the East St. Louis Race Riots. They always call it race riots when they kill somebody. The events of July 2nd and 3rd, 1917, tore East St. Louis apart and shocked the nation. The violence was largely one-sided, with mobs of armed whites burning hundreds of blacks' homes and beating, lynching, and shooting black residents. Most historians estimate that more than 100 people died. Our guest tonight will be Alabama gubernatorial candidate Stacey Lee George. Stacey has traveled around the United States building a diverse resume, working for companies such as NASA, Department of Defense, Boeing, 
Lockheed Martin SCI, Wright Patterson Air Force Base nuclear plants located in Arkansas and Louisiana, and currently serves as an Alabama corrections officer. Our abolitionist in profile will be provided by Scotty Reed. A writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Andrew Leander Wilson, who on March 16, 2017, uh, Wilson 62, was released from the Los Angeles County Men's Central Jail after spending 32 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. In our segment, For Freedom's Sake, A History of Rebellion, we will be remembering New Orleans' forgotten slave revolt of 1811. Of course, we'll cover as many recent articles of news in regards to some of the abolitionist movements as time will allow. And man, do we have some off-the-chain stories to break down today. If you got a question or a comment, you can call us at 1-866-510-9020. You can chat with us and others by logging in at uberconference.com slash blacktalkradionetwork. Once again, I'm Max Partis. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Hey, what's happening? Um, I think you might have uh, got your numbers confused, it's, um, uh, or maybe I heard you incorrectly, but let's give it out one more time, 866-510-9025, and it's star, yes, star, to unmute yourself. I'll see you on the board, and we will uh, bring you into the conversation. Um, Max just maintaining it's been raining here every day for the past two weeks off and on and I'm not complaining because we know how important water is to sustaining life but it's just really been either hot and muggy or it's been raining here Uh, just doing what I do every day trying to stay on my abolitionist grind Uh, have been involved in some interesting conversations uh, about the um, history of slavery and I found and I'm actually going to produce a video uh, to put it out to a um, you know through our YouTube channel to show people the evidence but Max consider this John Punch John Punch was a African indentured servant who came here um, he was he wasn't a slave. There were no slaves at that point. Everybody were were uh, classified as indentured servants, which means you have an employment contract to serve for a certain amount of years as a servant, farmhand, whatever, and then you would then you would be released from that contract. Well, John Punch, along with two European uh, indentured servants, ran away. Um, I can understand why John ran away because he was actually kidnapped by Africans in um, Africa, sold to uh, Arabs who sold him to Europeans who then gave him a, a chance at freedom through the indentured contract. So I can understand him running away. He, he didn't enter into anything willingly, but him and two uh, European indentured servants ran away they got caught and the Virginia colony uh, through the courts or through uh, the government punished him with li- a lifetime of slavery as punishment for his crime of running away. The two European indentured servants who ran away with him were given longer indentured you know, servitude uh, contracts meaning they had to do more time and now you bring that up to some of the things that we see today with the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution saying that 
you can use slavery as a punishment for crime. There's, I mean, just the ir- irony of that, Max, that the very first slave on this continent by in the colonies, the British colonies, was sentenced to a lifetime of slavery, okay, for crime. And now that's still in practice today. So, you know, that was a very fruitful uh, conversation I had with some of our fellow abolitionists who will be, uh, by the way, uh, with us in Washington, D.C. on August the 19th at Lafayette Park. Well, that's a mouthful that you had there, Scotty, for sure, man. Um, I can see, and it is ironic. Uh, this whole season is always a little rough for me, in particular knowing what I know and watching people around me celebrating another day where you are totally forgotten, like it's not your day. It has nothing to do with you at all. As a matter of fact, it's a day that really relishes in its ignorance of your life in general. Like you didn't even matter. When the uh, Declaration of Independence was written and uh, you passed in 1776, it didn't apply to blacks who were enslaved at the time. They remained enslaved for another 89 years. And then another 152 years after that with convict leasing and mass incarceration. So, you know, just watching these uh, double thinking, cognitive dissonance, and just really bamboozlement. <laughs> and I know it's tradition. Like, you know, we've had some beautiful cookouts in our lives. It's when our families get together, some of our greatest memories. But that's how indoctrination works. It puts the lie in the middle of the truth and lets you carry it from generation to generation. So you're out there shooting your fireworks off for what? Because they ignored your people? Because they didn't let you go? <laughs> well, really, saying, though, I mean? really, though, Max, how I have taught my children about the 4th of July is that the so-called founding fathers hijacked the American Revolution from common people. That would be Ben, uh, not Benjamin Banneker. That would be Crispus Attux, who, with other colonists, confronted British soldiers who were policing the colonies, confronted them for their violence against a team in their community, and that's known as the Boston Massacre. That 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 movement, if you will, against oppression, was then hijacked by wealthy slavers like George Washington, like Thomas Jefferson, and it wasn't about really about freedom because these people were not slaves. It was about not having to pay taxes. They didn't want to pay taxes to the British crown that was actually providing uh, the police, the British soldiers, again, protecting them. So we hear this whole thing about taxation without representation. But these are people who are enslaving other human beings. And then they want to complain about and act like, oh, they weren't free. So it was really a movement. uh, It was a, a I call it a a tax dodger. It was turned from a a movement of of freedom to a tax dodging uh, movement. But of course, you know, um, we aren't actually taught the truth about this, and very few Americans um, spend time doing deep research and reflection on this history. So that's what I taught my children about the 4th of July. And I said, and, and, and I don't colorize it, Max. 
you know, I, I'm getting out of colorizing stuff because we know the powers that be have used racism, which I was having this discussion with people yesterday. Racism is a symptom of slavery. At one point, you know, people weren't known by racial classifications. They were known by their nationalities and that though that you had a class of wealthy people and you had a class of peasants. The peasants came over here as indentured servants and at times they banned all the people regardless of, of racial classifications because again they weren't dealing with racial classifications back then um, um, they had a rebellion called Bacon's Rebellion where all of the oppressed poor and indentured servants rose up together to protest their maltreatment and then race was used to divide them and then that is when in in the Virginia man of Virginia plays a lot of uh, a role in the in the institution of slavery. But they started implementing racial classifications. You know, John Punch, African, he's getting treated differently than his European uh, indentured servants who ran away with him. He's sentenced to lifetime of slavery. Well, they got a lesser penalty. We see those sort of things today. But make no mistake, though, everyone in this country, regardless of classification, uh, uh, political, racial classifications, are victims of slavery. It's just impacting some of us more than others. But make no mistake, I'm against slavery, period. I don't think anyone should be enslaved and so as long as the uh, practice of slavery is enshrined in that constitution then I'm not and, and, and everyone is not free then I'm not celebrating these wealthy slavers independence because that's really what you're celebrating well Scotty one of the things you mentioned about uh, regarding the construction of race white and black red and brown the five so called races on this planet um, and how that fallacy was uh, turned into a tool for oppression and slavery to denote someone in particular who was the oppressed and who was not the oppressed. We were talking about that on my page today, and I simply asked the questions of, if you're from Africa, if you're from the, the you're a child of the diasporas, and you trace your roots to Africa, what nation of the 54 nations that are recognized today in Africa are you from? And I knew what I, I would expect to see. I would say about just dozens of replies and about 80% of them simply do not know. We don't know. Like that was stolen from us. And that's not something all of America shares. Most of America can tell you where they came from originally, where their families came from. All we got is somewhere over there. We're pointing to a continent over there somewhere. And hence, we have to seem to, to adopt something to call ourselves, which end up being black. Back when I was born, I was a Negro on my birth certificate. Before that, you know, people were property. <laughs> but we had to adopt something. So it's hard for us to talk about nationalities when the only thing we got is America. Well, you, well, Max, you kind of know me personally, you know, my family history a lot more so than I share w with the general public. And like I said in a thread yesterday, I'm not concerned about how this institution got started and who's to blame. I'm concerned about solving it. I don't care. I, you know, I mean, yes, history is important. It is important to know history, and it's more important to be intellectually honest about that history. 
But we got a problem right there in front of us. We got all these scholars, so-called scholars and stuff who want to talk about the past and, and what have you, but they're not talking about slavery. And they're not talking yeah, they about all these amendments like the 25th, but never say anything about the 13th. Exactly. They want to talk about the past, but they don't want to talk about how it relates to what we're seeing today. You you know, you can you can talk all day about and I'm not saying history is very important. It's my favorite subject and why I read history. I'm always reading history and reading books and about history, trying to understand how we got to this situation. But at the end of the day, it, it, all I need to know is that slavery was never abolished and we need to build a movement to remove that exception clause from the 13th Amendment and stop practicing slavery. So but you know, the, that's where I'm I guess at. today is another example of that movement being built. Because, you know, in order for it to be a movement, it's got to have every aspect that is required, including political. And we've seen firsthand and helped mentor a number of these political uh, activists who went out there and run an abolitionist platform. So it's got to be everywhere, in the music like it is now, in politics, in culture, in everything. It's got to be the voice of the people. If slavery is not something you want to end, then what is more important to you? I just want to read this real quick, Scotty, regarding the. And, and I want to let July, you know, Max, before you read that, I think we have our guests uh, waiting on the line. It's about eight eighteen, so um, okay. just want to make well, you let me, aware. Let me get this out of the way, and then I will introduce them and bring them right in. All right. Okay. Um, this came from Kevin Alexander Gray, uh, July second, and this is the state of South Carolina in regards to that where I'm at right now. On July second. 1776, the anti-slavery clause was removed from the Declaration of Independence at the insistence of Edward Rutledge, delegate from South Carolina. Rutledge threatened that South Carolina would fight for King George against her sister colonies. He asserted that he had the ardent support of pro-slavery elements in North Carolina and Georgia, as well as certain northern merchants reluctant to condemn a shipping trade largely in their own blood-stained hands. Fearful of postponing the American revolutions, opponents of slavery, who were in the clear majority, made a compromise. Thus, wow. July 4th, 1776, marks for African Americans not Independence Day, but the moment when their ancestors' enslavement became fixed by law, as well as custom in the new nation. There you have it. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest coming in today is... Uh, Man, I was just looking at the the brother's uh, resume, and he has done it all. Uh, he's part of NASA, Department of Defense, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, SCI, Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Nuclear. He's worked in nuclear plants, and I heard on an interview where he's talking about how he helped build parts for the uh, the freaking space shuttle. You know what I mean? He's a friend of Newt Gingrich's. He knows Donald Trump. He's been in political office on a number of times, running as both a Democrat and a Republican, and uh, has been successful as well as taking a few losses. And this brother is a Republican, and on top of that, he's a Republican abolitionist talking about the 13th Amendment while running for governor in Alabama. If uh, Man, it's like moments in history where you just got to look at it in its entirety. So again, here we have this movement that is starting to wake people up, and these are one of the, he's one of the people who has woken up today. So, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, Stacey Lee George. And uh, if you're on the line, just press star star. I believe one. I just unmuted them. Um, I'm I'm 
I see this number from Alabama with Alabama, excuse me, Alabama's zip code. I'm sorry, area codes. Come on, Scotty. Uh, two five six. Is that our guest line on the line? That's correct. Stacy George. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio. Uh, Stacy George, it's good to have you here, man. Uh, Listen to some of your words, and I was very much inspired by the idea that you, uh, unlike many of those who are in the Republican Party, manage to see what's going on here with this 13th Amendment. Yeah, you're, that's true. If you work in the prison system, as I have done for eight years, you see it uh, firsthand. And, you know, that's why, you know, God put it on my heart to uh, kick my campaign off in Selma, Alabama. I ran 3.2 miles across the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, wearing solid black. Um, 260 pounds, that's a pretty good accomplishment, Five foot nine. So I thought that was good. I didn't drop dead, so that, that was an awesome thing. But we came in, changed clothes, went out and talked about uh, the 13th Amendment. I did it on the 13th, uh, and I started speaking at 1313. Mm. Uh, that's, that's a very powerful statement to make. Uh, let me ask you something. You do consider yourself a slavery abolition in regards to taking the amendment and removing the exception clause, right? Yeah, I think that's uh, that was put in, and, and it was actually, it captured, it set, you know, the goal, I guess, for the public opinion was to set everybody free, you know, the slavery, uh, set the slaves free, but they recaptured them in the second part of that clause, uh, you know, and they're, uh, uh, you know, a slave of the state, and yeah, we've got to fix that, and, you know, it's going to be a tough on the federal level to fix it, but in Alabama, you know, we're going to address it by, uh, you know, attacking issues within that and changing uh, our laws that are just taking people and keeping them in prison forever uh, for very, very low offenses, and there's just so many good people, you know, uh, in prison. There's some horrible people in prison, just like in society, you know, uh, but the problem is, is we have... Uh, the rich and powerful, they don't go to prison. So you got a bunch of, you got white people. You know, you can call people any color, you know, white, black, brown, red, you know, whatever color, but they're usually poor, middle income, people who got a court-appointed attorney or mentally challenged. That's, that's just a horrible thing. We've got those folks captured, um, and they have a mind of a child in the prison system. So we have just, really, we don't fund mental health in Alabama like we should. Uh, there's just so many things we can do in Alabama to be better. Wow. Um, let me ask you a, a couple of questions, if you don't mind. You're running yes, as governor for Alabama, and your uh, one of your your primary concerns is the Thirteenth Amendment and the exception clause, which allows for people to be treated as property and sold on the open market through prison stocks and and jail bonds and such. How do you feel about prison labor? And I ask that because I know that you have mentioned that you approve of using prisoners in order to help to build a wall. And you said that, you know, pay them a few dollars for doing that. I don't know exactly what that means, whether it means minimum wage for the job they're doing or not. But I know also that just in 2012, I believe, Alabama passed laws that allowed private industry to start using prison labor as well. So I understand where you're coming from to a degree in regards to using prisoners if you're paying them to do things that will uh, rebuild the, the infrastructure of our nation. But yeah, how, that's, yeah. How does that uh, play into private industry using prisoners to make McDonald's suits, for instance, the fast food? Well, we, don't, 
Yeah, I don't believe in any private prisons or, or private for profit industry using prison labor. Now, what I want to do is use the North Carolina. They implemented a uh, youth offender program in 1998. Um, this was, uh, they offered 36 college courses, 18 to 25 year old inmates. Um, it, in nine years, the recidivism rate dropped from 49% to 19%. They actually extended it to 18 to 35 uh, in the next few years. And there was Allison Anders, is where I got this information. But the bottom line is in Alabama, what I want to do is I want to give the inmates. Uh, an education when they come to prison. I want them to get a uh, you know two-year trade for sure, um, like in electricity, welding, brick masonry, uh, carpentry, something that they can get out and get a job immediately. And what I want to do is <clears throat> let them do a two-year program, get a GED. They can get the GED either during their um, their courses, or they can go ahead and get it toward the end. But in two years, I want a GED and I want a two-year trade. After that two-year trade, what I want to do is I want to be able to work release them in the uh, trade that they're skilled in. And, you know, in the wall, you've got drafting. We have drafting there. We have uh, construction. We have, uh, you know, brick masonry, uh, you know, concrete work, all the, the construction, everything, welding. We have welders. Uh, we did have auto body, we did have uh, auto mechanics, and this would be able to um, get this trade, send them out there, pay them not just a dollar or two, but uh, pay them at least, you know, a, a number I would say is, you know, maybe $10 an hour or something. Something that would give them significant enough to where they'd have money. And the goal is, is to let them be there for one year. And when they get through, when they get their diploma in their hand, one year later, they'll go do their job, and then they'll go home as a free person. And they'll have that trade. They'll have the skill. They'll have the uh, the work hours in, and they'll have some money in the bank so they don't have to go home to the same place that, that got them put in prison. Right now, we let an inmate out in Alabama prison. We drop them off at a bus station. If they've never been in prison before, we give them $10 and a bus ticket back to the same town that put them here. That's sad. Wow, That's that not- is sad. Um, um, Mr. George, um, your last name is George, right? Stacy George. Yes, sir. All yes, right, sir. Um, Mr. George. It made it, I had a smile on my face when you said ten dollars an hour. Uh, one of the things I have said was at least whatever the federal minimum wage is, and I think what ten dollars an hour is more than the federal minimum wage. Um, because I have told, I have we've talked to people and debated with people and said, well, if they getting paid a dollar a day or two dollars a day, if you're fighting fires out there in California, uh, that's not slavery. How is it slavery if they're getting paid? See, a lot of people don't don't really know the history of slavery, and they don't know that some of the the um, victims of slavery were paid a wage. And that's where the term slave wage comes from. We have highlighted those uh, like a Denmark. Uh, well, Denmark Vesey actually won a lottery and that's how he purchased his freedom. I can't remember this woman's name, but she was a dressmaker, a very skilled, you know, dressmaker. 
And the person that was enslaving her sold the dresses for a profit. But they gave her a little slave wage. And she saved up her slave wages and eventually was able to purchase her freedom. So, to me, if you're paying them slave wages, then they're slaves. Now, another thing you mentioned, another thing you mentioned that is so important is that they'll be able to save up money and then they can come out and better, uh, you know, be integrated into society. They'll have the money to have a place. They'll have the money to, you know, fund their job searches and, and things of that nature. They'll have money to purchase a vehicle, you know. But also, right. what about the mothers and the fathers who have children at home? they will also be able to continue to pay their child support and contribute to their families back home. I just That's wanted exactly to add right. that. I just wanted to add that, but I was very excited to hear you mention $10 an hour. Yeah, you know, you, you've got to give people some money, and you can't live. You know, I've been middle income uh, all my life, higher middle income and then lower middle income, you know, I was raised on disability social security. My dad was paralyzed when I was twelve and I started working and he uh he worked three jobs before he got hurt, fell and bruised his spinal cord, paralyzed him and so, you know, we ate that commodity cheese and powdered milk and you know, the um uh peanut butter was pretty good too. But you know, people just uh you know, they made fun of us, you know, we were you know, some of the kids, you know, you're standing in that line. But you know, I believe that everybody needs a hand up in life. You know, I've been raised uh to work hard and you know, I've been in three or four counties today and working on multiple things. I do my signs, do my uh, the talking, and I do the uh, everything in between, coordinating. I've got a good team together. But, you know, I just work hard. I get up at 3 in the morning. Uh, I say my prayer. I go to bed. I say my prayer. And when I go to bed, God says, you know, for four years, God's put on my heart. You know, 13 just comes up everywhere. And uh, so I'm taking a position on something that's not popular. So I'm telling people what they need to hear not what they want to hear. And so that's yes. what my campaign is about, um, is telling people what they need to hear. This is not popular, but the problem is is we've got too many people in prison. Uh, some of them need to be there, but some of them need to go home uh, and live their life and, and be integrated into society and be taxpayers, not tax users. This is $18,500 a year to incarcerate somebody. And I think and, the taxpayers, my approach is, hey, I'm tired of paying for these guys. Let's get them out working, like you said, paying their child support, whatever court fines they have. Uh, there's a lot of things they need to be doing and be productive, and, and they can do that. I saw them, witnessed it. If I hadn't witnessed it, I would have never um, been able to do this and you know be able to take this position. But as county commissioner, I was the first Republican elected. And two terms there, and I worked inmates there as well, and I wrote a lot of letters to the parole board. I actually went down there in person one time and uh, got an inmate out as well and went down there and the parole board said, yeah, we want to talk to Commissioner George. He sees all these letters. So God's put it on my heart a long time. I go to bed and God says, you know, I just puts it on my heart, you know, set some of his people free. And not all of them, but there's a lot of people that need to be set free. And and I'm tired of people kicking the can down the road. And you hear Democrats all the time. I'm a Republican, but you hear them all the time talk about it. Uh, but, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, he's one of them that put this uh, habitual offender right. in there. and then He did it. Now, and Frederick you know, Douglass was a Republican, too. Right. Hey, That's I, right. I, yeah. I want to so, ask you a couple of questions if I can nail a few things down. So you're yes, saying sir. basically 
that you would oppose any legislation that either already exists or is submitted that allows the state of Alabama to use private industry in regards to their prison labor. That's correct. correct. I, I have opposed that. Any privatization for two years, I've been trying to kill a bill, and we've been successful. We have killed a bill that they wanted to build new prisons in Alabama, $1.5 billion uh, over 30 years for new prisons in the state. And if they do, all they'll do is fill it up with more people. So I've opposed that. As a correction officer in a prison, and boy, it's been tough. You know, when your boss works for the governor, it's, it's a tough thing when you take a position against building new prisons and take the stance I have. But, you know, $800 million after the bond issues in over 30 years, $1.5 billion. I said we need to build schools, not prisons, and we need to lower the inmate population. And I think I can do that by about 5,000 inmates over a year period of time through, you know, IGT, bring it from 15 to 20, you know, some things, uh, incentive good time, uh, make it from uh, 15 to 20, include Class A felonies in the adjustment. Uh, no more split sentences for these judges. We want to repeal the 446 Act. You know, that was the Habitual Offender Act. They took a Texas law that was the same three felonies, and you start, you know, you get maxed out. But what happened was Alabama took that same law, and they said any three felonies. So this thing filled the prison up. Charlie Graddock, the judge, Democrat judge, he was running for attorney general, and he brought this out, and uh, they put this in effect in Alabama. And, you know, uh, anybody that gets $50,000 worth of medical expenses, we need to look at that, too, you know. if, if the, I had We had a guy in there, I can't name names, third-degree burglary charge, had one leg. The state had already paid for his leg, diabetes, been in there 22 years, third-degree burglary. Are you kidding me? Uh, the state's paid for that leg. So I tell the taxpayers, do y'all want to keep paying for all this stuff? Or do you want to go ahead and, and get these folks out? You know, at some point, and this is what I ask people, and this is what I started off in Selma, and this is a question God put on my heart. At what point does punishment become revenge? And punishment is society's job. That's our job, the judges, the sheriffs, the jurors. Uh, but revenge is God's job. And these judges are making these long sentences, and they're playing God, and God's not happy. That's my message. And I'm not happy, and you shouldn't be happy either. A follow-up you know? follow to, follow to what you just said. Well, first, let, let me say this. Um, I try to stress to people not to put a whole lot of stock in labels. As you mentioned, the Democrats have been just as involved in what they call mass incarceration, although I don't like that term uh, because it's slavery and we need to tell people, be honest with people and use the correct language. The Constitution says it's slavery, so I'm going with that. All right. So, but, um, but, um, I don't put a lot of stock in labels. I understand that's how the system is set up right now in the political system to, you know, it's very hard for you to run on a third party and get any kind of support, you know, because those third parties don't have as many resources. But, you know, so, but I see the same problem with the Republican Party. And over the years, we've heard this rhetoric. How does the black, the Republican Party make inroads or do outreach to the black voting uh, community? And I say abolition. 
Abolition. Return to your Republican roots of abolitionism and you tell people the truth about what's going on and stop working in a bipartisan fashion with Democrats to lock people up and you'll be surprised at what kind of inroads you can make. Yes. Yeah, the uh this one thing you don't you might not know about Alabama. Alabama is the only state in the United States that pays a dollar seventy five a day to sheriffs to feed inmates and whatever they have left over they can pocket legally. Damn. Only state in the United States. See that's gotta stop. And actually led I turned the other sheriff in when I was county commissioner. It's probably what cost me my ultimate job was I turned him in. He actually went to jail for that because we were under a federal court order and it said adequately feed inmates and he fed them corn dogs three times a day for three months. A corn dog truck turned over. Craziest thing. Pocketed all the dollars seventy five a day, made several thousand dollars. But the jail judge, UW Clemens, uh, made him eat every meal. He did get out, but it cost him his next election. The only state in the United States, also the only the only state in the United States, Alabama, is the parole board doesn't even interview inmates. It's crazy. They all they do is get down here with some pieces of paper. Um, people protest, and then their family come down there, but they don't physically talk to them. The first day I'm in office, by executive order, I'll sign an order that says no one will ever get out of prison or be kept in prison without talking to the parole board face-to-face for 30 minutes. A picture's worth a thousand words. They don't even know who they're letting out or keeping in. It's the craziest thing I've ever saw in my life. Well, one of the things you might want to add to that is having these parole board members become qualified somehow. We have been reading recent reports in regards to some of the discourse where they're deciding people's lives or freedoms within 15 minutes, cursing them out with no kind of background whatsoever in psychology or anything like that. And oftentimes these are situations of racism where you have three white people and one black victim right there and they see something that does not exist and that comes out in their actions. So you should really consider uh, some kind of qualifications for parole boards. And I agree with that, yeah. I've watched it. I've been down and watched the parole board, and I actually watched it. Was, and I'll just use this example. This older lady, she was about, I say older, I'm getting old too, you know, so I don't call anybody old, but she was probably late 60s, about retirement age. Uh, she was black in color. The, black, uh, the chairman was a black parole board member, uh, and then they had two white guys on the side. White guy's been there forever. The black guy had only been there for uh, probably a term. Anyway, they're all here talking about some kind of watermelon festival. Two white guys are very unprofessional. The the black guy that's on there, he's talking on the telephone, cell phone to somebody, and and so they get up and ask this lady, and she she says, uh, they said, well, they named his name and let her come up. I guess the other side had already come in, and I saw them going out and saying, praise God, he's not getting out. So. Basically, she gets up to take a position for her son. So she says, they said, well, what do you do, ma'am? Where are you from? And I know who you're here for. And so tell us something about it yourself. She said, well, I work at the chicken plant over here in whatever county. Worked hard all her life, I'm sure. And she says, I need to get my son out. And anyway, the bottom line is the guy was at Red Eagle. Um, he didn't have any disciplinaries in the last 10 years. And Red Eagle only has a like a, just a barbed wire fence, barbed wire fence, not a very big fence. You know, it's just a honor camp. Obviously, if he's an honor camp, that's a good thing. But they looked at her and said, 
let me just tell you something. It looks like uh, we're not going to we're not going to let him out. He'd been in for like probably 20 years. They said we're not going to let him out, and there's no use in even worrying about it. We're never going to let him out. Then they turned around, talked to each other, just whispered, been on, on the phone, and then they come back and said, "Ma'am, what are you going to get him? What, what did you want to do? Put him a job at the chicken plant? Making fun of her working at the chicken plant? I just wanted to choke him, to be honest with you. You know, I'm sitting here looking just so mad. Uh, and and bottom line is, they said, well, we might bring him up early on an early cut, but he's not going to get out of prison. And so she cried, she smiled, she cried, and when she left, she was crying, and it was just, a, that's just an example of what goes on. You're right, you need to be qualified, you need to know something about prison, something about mental health, you need to be educated, uh, but they put people on there that, you know, um, may own a lumber company, which is a great thing, or something that doesn't have anything to do with it, but it's political appointments, and they're put on there for, you know, politics instead of doing their job. You know, everything you described is uh, textbook crime against humanity for each person that that has occurred to. And it really needs to end. And I'm really glad that you've taken up this mantle and you felt this in your heart. God has given you your mission. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly glad about that. And I'm hoping that you can win this. I remember when Hillary Clinton called a whole swath of people deplorables, right? remember that right. and just to put them in a yeah. bucket together but not long before that Romney said very much the same thing saying those 47% never vote well those 47% will hear you loud and clear right now because that's one of the reasons why people never vote because they don't believe anybody has their best interests at heart when they see around them these human rights violations happening and everybody's turning blind eyes but you are not so I suspect that you would draw a lot of attention just for that alone I, I would also like to ask you are you familiar with the state constitution of Alabama regarding slavery at this point. I got it up right here, Max. <laughs> we on the same page. I was... I'm not familiar with that, no, sir. Let me read it to you, here. sir. Uh, section ahead, 30, 32. Well, actually, we spent, what, uh, 50 weeks highlighting the constitutions of every state. And in what Good. what Max ninety nine percent of them uh, mirror the Thirteenth Amendment. Uh, uh, no, it, it was actually more like uh, there's about half of the states have language of their own, which use one of three words, otherwise, unless, or except. Well, well yeah, that's as, what that's uh, what I mean. It's still emulating an exception clause that's in the Thirteenth Amendment. So that's what I meant. Right. But here is Section thirty two of the Alabama Constitution. Slavery prohibited involuntary servitude is the title. That no form of slavery shall exist in this state, and there shall not be any involuntary servitude otherwise than for the punishment of crime, of which the party shall have been duly convicted. So that very closely mirrors the 13th Amendment. And at the beginning of the program, I don't know if you had an opportunity for me to to tell you about mm-hmm, about good. John Punch, the first victim of slavery in the colonies, being sentenced to a lifetime of slavery as punishment for a crime, although I wouldn't classify a kidnapped person running away as crime, but you know, but here we are in twenty seventeen and we're still using that same language, so nothing's really changed. The reason I brought it up uh, Brother George is because some of your initiatives uh, have been 
apparently will need a constitutional convention for the state of Alabama. And you're, you've said that you're willing to go that far in order to enact certain initiatives. And I would uh, offer that you consider that the exception clause be taken out of the Alabama uh, state constitution as one of those additional initiatives while you're uh, going through the constitutional convention. I know we're going to have several constitutional amendments that will have to be voted on by the people, but a lot of these changes will be legislative. Um, but I wouldn't have a problem taking it out because I don't believe slavery should exist anywhere. And, you know, this is something you might look at, and this is an angle I looked at. The 13th Amendment, just as is, should be challenged, too, because I filed ethics charges for 20 years. I've got a book coming out, Corruption in the Heart of Dixie. It's white-collar crime. Uh, you know, the sheriff... You know, he went to jail. I filed ethics on the governor. See, I ran for governor last time and come in second in the Republican primary, a distant second. But I come in second against uh, Governor Bentley. And I filed ethics charges against him, and my ethics charge is what they used to take him out of office. So I'm tough on crime, but this is what I see. You've got uh, a violation of the 13th Amendment. I, you know, I'm like you. I get tired of the, the 8th Amendment, the crew, and they use the wrong things. But let's just say we use the, the 13th Amendment. If you're giving sentences, I got him on actually filed uh, four, uh, six on him, got him on four, 20 years each, class class B felonies, uh, class A felonies, 20 years each. He didn't get one day in jail or prison in any form or fashion. They let him plead out before he even went to court and slap on the wrist, paid several thousand dollars, and did a little bit of community service. If it had been anybody else that had done 20 years, but this is my point. If you're giving the rich and powerful a different sentence than you are the poor people, then you're already in violation of the 13th Amendment as it exists. And I think if somebody filed that in court that you're giving, because you're giving, you're giving revenge on some, which is slavery, and you're giving the, the rich and powerful nothing. So you're not properly even doing the 13th Amendment as it's written. So I think... <laughs> You know what I mean? So yeah. people, if, so we, that should be challenged, uh, and that's something that I'm going to look at because we shouldn't be, if you're not going to give the rich and powerful the same sentence, then you're not going to uh, put these poor people in here either. So, you know, that same amendment, if you're not fair with it, then I think that the, um, the, the Supreme Court would look at it, if it went up through the channels, that they would say that they would put us all under a point system and make us all use the same point system in the United States and say, you know what, we're going to take it out of the hands of these judges that apparently can't do their job because rich people give them money and poor people, they put them in prison, you know, long sentences in jail. So if they can't do it, uh, the Supreme Court, I bet they could put us under a point system nationwide and everybody has to do the same sentencing. You know, um, we, we have a caller before I come go to our caller. I just want I just want to make a illust I want to illustrate your point. Um, I spent six right. years in the in the U.S. Army. I had a top secret security clearance during the Gulf War, so I know a little something about you know security clearances and and things of that nature. And Hillary Clinton should be in jail right now when all of these different soldiers right. have been convicted. For for not securing, you know, uh, uh, secret information properly, and then for what what was the last? Uh, what's the guy name who just left the FBI? I forget his name. Tommy. Tommy. Yeah, Tommy. 
for Comey to sit up there and Congress and lay out a convincing argument that she violated the law and then to say, well, there was no intent. And I mean, where, I mean, so I could just go to court and my defense can be, hey, yeah, you caught me selling drugs, but I didn't intend to sell drugs. You know, my situation, poverty and whatnot kind of forced me into it, but I didn't really intend to be out here selling drugs, so please let me go. Does that illustrate right. your point, sir? It does. And we had a Speaker of the House indicted last year, and he was found guilty. They charged him with 23 felonies, found him guilty on 12, and he still hadn't done one day in uh, prison. Wow. Still hasn't. He might be six months. But you see what I mean? That's another rich and powerful person in Alabama. So, you know, this has to stop, and it has to stop. The governor can stop this, and, and I'm going to stop it. Um, that's what's going to happen. We have a call. Uh, Stacey, George. Uh, yeah, we have a call. Let me just ask one question real quick because there is two I want to get out before we were done with the evening. Uh, yes, sir. The first question I want to get out is when you become governor, because I'm predicting you become governor. I'm putting that bump on it right now. So when you pre- become governor, uh, I would suggest that you look into the company that you are dealing with right now for health care within the prisons called Corizon. Horizon has already settled at least $5 million in inmate lawsuits, and they have been known to be corrupt and exploitative uh, to the point where they are providing people with no health care but charging the state for services and uh, things that they never provide at all, which literally leads to people dying uh, by neglect. And this is Horizon, which has a contract with the state now. Right. And, you know, I can't comment on anything, you know, within the prison system to stay clear on myself. I don't want to get in any kind of trouble. But this is what I can say. I can say that there will be a a state doctor, and I already know who it's going to be, and I'm going to have a state nurse. And and they will be hired by the state, and they will interview all people before they even work in the prison system. And this contract to be an exclusive to anybody you know, if we're going to bid it out, then we're going to bid it out fairly. That's what I've been mad at anyway. You give all these professional services different things. You spec people out of different things. But what we would do, if we did that, what we would do is contract it out. It would be specifications would be opened up where people can bid on it. But I really, I really like to look at more state being run by the state. You know, public health uh, needs to be done uh, public safety, things of that nature needs to be done by the government, I feel like. Um, but anything else you could contract out. But this thing having so many implications, you know, it doesn't matter who the provider is. I'm, there's political pressure from different angles, I'm sure, on whoever gets the contract. Don't spend money, you know, different things from politicians, the second largest budget in the state. And what we've got to do is we've got to treat our mental health, take them out of the prison system, sad we got them in there see what we have but i'm going to tell you something nobody's going to go my dad was paralyzed and we had to carry him to hospital he had a lot of you know care his whole life and i see a lot of people in prison as poor people and we were in you know social security disability social security so i'm not going to let anybody suffer in the prison if we the way i look at it if you put somebody in prison then you have basically adopted them 
Now, if you want to keep them in prison, you're going to have to uh, give them health care, uh, and you're going to have to provide it uh, adequately, and you're going to have to, you know, do your job. And, that, and that's what I'll do as governor. I don't want to comment on any certain company because I don't want to get in trouble because I do work in the prison system. So, I'm but scared. I will. Yeah, but I, I am looking at it. I have, you know, looked at things for eight years in the prison system. I see a lot of things that need to change. But I know that there's a doctor um, that will be over that, and there will be a nurse that interviews every person before they come in there. And both of these people uh, have dealt with incarcerated individuals. I won't name them because I don't want them to be in trouble, but I've looked at them for years now. And so we're, we're not going to mistreat anybody. Now, we're going to, uh, on this first five years, if these uh, on crime, if these folks want to come to prison, the judge sees them over and over. Um, we're going to bring them into the prison system, give them a chance to get their education, uh, and try to get them back on the street. And that's that's the way we're going to do it. But now, if these guys don't want to go to school, we come in, you know, young white, young black, brown, red, you know, every color of person. If they come in and they don't want to go to school and don't want to learn and want to be hard headed, then I'm going to I'm going to uh, let them do some physical labor until they decide they won't get education because if they don't get that education, they're not going to make it in society. They've got to get that education. We've got to re-enter them into society and get them in the workforce. And they've got to have some money in the bank so they don't go back to the same place they do. Uh, but we have got to uh, get a hold of our young people in general and give them some guidance. I see a lot of people, man, unfit to be a slave, which is what Frederick Douglass said. Got to get them education because if not, they're tough. Otis, I appreciate your answer on that. We're going to open up the phone line. We have a caller. Uh, caller, state your name and where you're calling from and what your question, comment is for Stacy George here today. That's yeah, you. Is Otis. Who is it? Otis. Hey, Otis, what's hey. happening? Welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio, brother. Hey, man, I'm welcome back. I just wanted to ask him since I, I hear him talking and I know he's he's pretty much on his game. I only know one state, and that's Hawaii, that has resisted ALEC boilerplate bills throughout uh, their state. So I want to know, does he know how many senators or representatives in his state are on the take from ALEC and the GEO group and all of them? Because even though they may not be operating private prisons, GEO group and Core Civic are one of the biggest contributors to most of the ALEC uh, participants. I do know that we do have a private facility. I'm watching real closely in Shelby County. Just changed owners, but you know those Coke brothers down there—they're into everything in Washington. And I don't know if that's the group you're talking about, but they're within—that's within the Republican Party. So let's talk about them a little while. Uh, you see, a lot of times Republicans want to uh, privatize uh, things and contract it out, and you cannot do public safety. And you can't work people, you know, under slavery conditions, um, you know, for free. And I think that's a lot of the problem with the uh, the illegal immigration issue in, in, in Alabama and the United States is you got some of the, the wealthiest people, uh, they don't want to fix the problem because they're, they're actually working people as slaves. Think about it, not paying taxes. So you've got a group of people that want them gone, you got another group, the wealthiest people that are working them for almost free, so in slavery. And so, see, you've got all kind of problems, but it all backs up to wanting cheap labor uh, for mm -hmm. people. Yeah, and, and I want to add something else, since he sounds like he's one of the, the, the kind of people we're looking for running for public office. 
The other thing is funding public defenders. Some of the research I've done over the last eight years shows that the easiest way to back up the jail system and turn local jails into holding pens, which basically become a prison, is to not fund the public defenders. The people you know, representation. representation. Well, as county commissioner, I watched that closely, and that's how I watched the jail. You know, I, I watched the sheriff, you know, starve inmates for a profit, and and finally we got him. I brought it out, and, and finally they, they – God bless you for that, me. brother. Yeah, and, you know, I lost my job for it. Next time when he did get out, he was mad as heck, and I think they probably spent $180,000 putting me out of office. But, you know, when I went out, I, I said, you know – that's what God put on my heart, and I said, I'm going to keep working, and I just kept on going, and I work as a correction officer now. We're going to keep moving forward. But uh, the bottom line is you're exactly you're exactly right. They do that. And let me tell you what they did on this prison bill. We had this prison bill. They were trying to pass it. They didn't show anything. Then they showed all this violence in the prison system on TV, press released it. And then what they did is they took those county jails that were filled up, and they moved them into the prison system before the bill passed so that we would be uh, overcrowded and understaffed. They froze our raises. They did multiple things to make this thing to where they could sell it as no-bid contracts. Did you know that? $1.5 well, no-bid contracts is where it started. Two years they tried to pass this thing. The most corrupt bill I've ever seen in the state. But, yeah, you're exactly right. It's profit, and these guys use those county jails. They fill them up. And these judges, you know, you've got to get term limits on all these folks. You've got to get term limits on sheriffs, judges, House members, uh, Congress, you know, people in federal, state level, even local level. Nobody needs to serve more than two terms, and then they need to go home. Because if they don't... I want to give you one more bit of advice. I'm 63, so I'm going to tell you this for free. It's probably only worth what you pay for it. Find you two to three tech savvy young people if you got to go to a junior college or if you know something in your family because you're going to need them to be able to use this internet so you can find out some of the people that may be smiling in your face but taking money under the table in shell companies tech savvy yeah. young people are the ones you need to do that well, I appreciate that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into that because I know which ones and down in Montgomery right now, the Democrats are actually the minority caucus down there is actually the way I go to get things done uh, to try to get these bills on prison, real prison reform done. The prison reform Republicans have in Alabama is build more prisons and throw away the key. Now, they did pass a little Senate bill for 67 that, that had a, uh, a dip and dunk clause in it that lowered the inmate population or at least gives the illusion it does that they just – they just recycle inmates back into the prison system, so it's not solving anything. But well, you see, uh, in Montgomery right now, it's a majority, supermajority Republican. So it's going to take a Republican governor to change this in Alabama, and it's going to take somebody that tells people what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. And, you know, that's what I'm going to tell people, win or lose, and God will take care of the rest. Well, you know, a wise man once said, if it's done in the dark, it must be brought to light. And if it survives in the light, it must be all right. Hey, I got. <laughs> I got. I got one more thing, Max. Uh, we up against it for our station identification break, but I have one more thing that uh, Mr. George just kind of reminded me of because the tentacles of slavery. I tell you, 
they're just in places that you wouldn't even think about. And as y'all, as I was listening to you speak, I was reminded of this these programs, these these television cable programs where they're going in profiting off of slavery, you know, by showing, oh, what's pri- what's prison life like? And I, I think that's exploitive. And I don't think that they should be allowed in these prisons to provide slavery entertainment for the general public. I agree with you. I agree with you there. It's exploited and it's always for profit. And, you know, they always show um, the worst case. And I'll be honest, you know, I'm white. Uh, you know, I don't know. I may have hard black, Hispanic. I don't know. We're not all true any one color anymore. But the bottom line is most time they'll show a black male you know, doing something wrong on TV, and they'll show it in prison, uh, and that's wrong because they're just. I looked the other day, and there was just as many people, uh, white people, as is black people in prison. You know, the Hispanic community uh, is in there for a lot of times. You know, uh, powder cocaine. Uh, the white people, that meth, has got some poor white people in there. Uh, you know, we've got, um, you know, we've got the the black community. A lot of times, it's uh, you know, crack cocaine or something. But you know what? The devil doesn't discriminate. He uses whatever he can use to get people addicted to it and get them put in prison. And uh, and then, you know, at times it seems like they'll never get out, especially in a lot of these states, southern states. There's a few northern states that are bad too. But I think the, the, the Supreme Court needs to rule that we're going to give the same punishment for all inmates and lock these judges into uh, some real truth in sentencing so they can't give these long sentences. And I think it's going to take the, the Supreme Court to do that because they don't have the backbone uh, to do it uh, as judges. Mm. Well, Mr. Yeah. Mr. Yeah. George, um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to uh, leave our listening audience with the final uh, comment for tonight. And I would love to have you back on the program because you are very informed about this issue and I stand behind your your candidacy all the way. We just always are seeking out abolitionist candidates running for public office. So did you have, uh, unless Max has another question, uh, but did you have it, yes. a final comment for us? Oh, go ahead, Max. I did have one, one thing that I wanted to hear from uh, Brother Stacy George. Uh, you are familiar with the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March on D.C., which is also going to be happening in Alabama simultaneously, right? That's correct. I'll actually be speaking there. Yes. If you That's would mind giving an endorsement here on our program for the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March, August 19th, and letting people know uh, what role you'll be playing on that day, I would appreciate it. Yeah, I will be. Yeah, I think it's a great thing. I think that, uh, and I've been told it'll be a peaceful protest. You know, Dr. King, Martin Luther King, is is my uh, mentor. I got a button up there on top of my car as I drive down the road. He's uh, a January baby like me. I, I've looked into him. He uh, he was uh, he was actually assassinated uh, nine months before I was born, and uh, it's just a uh, uh, amazing thing what he did, and he did it peacefully. And that's what I see. Dr. King uh, is inspiration, and I'd like to see that movement uh, take over 
and peacefully get these things done and working together across all the lines. But, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be talking about at what point does punishment become revenge, and I'm going to, uh, you know, speak my mind, and, and I'm there to support the cause in a peaceful Thank manner. For those that don't know, on March 19th, our two main primary concerns for our listeners will be, one, removing the exception clause from the 13th Amendment, and two, congressional hearings on the effects of the 13th Amendment over the last 50 years, if not 152 years. So thank you so much, Brother Stacy George. And shout out to your wife, Karen. I know she's listening there. How you doing? Uh, she's always got your back. I've been, Like I said, I've been looking through some of your stuff, man. She's always got your back. It's beautiful. Yeah, she does, she's, uh, she's going to take into the human trafficking. So that ties into slavery, too. So she's going to be taking a role in that. That's going to be her part as First Lady is human trafficking. And it's all tied to slavery. Um, so we're going to uh, clean up Alabama, and then we're going to do what we can to, to be vocal nationwide. And, and try to be, you know, the, the governor from Alabama, Republican governor from Alabama, that would make us look really good uh, to take a stand and be one of the first states to really fix this problem. Yes, sir. Go to StacyLeeGeorge.com and check out his platform there and uh, show him your support in Alabama. We're going to get you to win this one, brother. We want to see you in office. Let's make this happen. Thank you for being here with us on New Abolitionist Radio. And as Scotty said, we hope to have you back again, uh, not only before you win, but after you win as well. Well, I'll be I'll be available at all times, and I appreciate it. Maybe they go up there, StacyLeeGeorge.com, give us ten dollars, and keep us on the road, and we'll appreciate it. Yes, sir, indeed. Good You're speaking to, to you, uh, Scotty. Okay. No, I was just saying, good speaking with him, and and I'm going to stand on faith that you going you are going to win. That's how I feel about it. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio here on BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. When we come back, we're going to listen to a video that came out from the NRA recently, and we're going to have a little talk about that. We'll be right back after these messages. since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. You just heard us speaking with gubernatorial candidate Stacey Lee George out in Alabama as an abolitionist, he is pushing to take the exception clause out of the 13th Amendment and end slavery in the United States of America forever, as well as in Alabama. He sounds like a really good man. What do you think, Scotty? Um, well, like I said before, very informed about the issue. He understands the issue. Um, he's not just talking about saving money, but he's also looking at it as a moral issue. And I can tell that, you know, he is convicted in his heart that this is slavery. I mean, all the evidence is there. And, you know, there are people who they know 
You think Barack Obama didn't know slavery was never abolished, but he wasn't. He's a constitutional lawyer. He went to Harvard. We played videos of him talking to college students about it, but he did nothing to address the issue, even though Max, I pointed this out last night, it's ironic that he's reportedly a descendant of John Punch, the first victim sentenced to slavery by the courts. The first victim. He's reportedly a descendant of that man on his mama's side. And so it's one thing to know. It's another thing to do something about it. And he he sounded sincere in his understanding of the issue. And and he seems uh, convicted in his heart to do everything that he, he said. He's going to do because if he don't, you know, we're going to call him out on it because we got him uh, recorded on this podcast right here. So, yeah, <laughs> that, Stacey Scotty said he was going to blackmail you. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to get you afterwards if you don't do what you said you're going to do. That's how we roll, man. I'm glad he mentioned the Koch brothers, the Koch brothers, too, because they are some wicked mechanisms going on here, you know. Their Constitutional Convention Article 5 thing has been roadblocks now. I think that has a lot to do with our interest that we were showing in it. Uh, so the Coach Cox Brothers are behind a lot of stuff. They may even be behind this NRA video that came out conveniently a couple of days before the 4th of July, which I thought was extremely uh, just volatile. Like, you're, you're literally telling people that you're going to pay their legal expenses as they go out and shoot somebody from the NRA and you know I heard them on a radio program and they said they were trolling like you know liberals get triggered by video and this is not some kind of joke they were serious as a heart attack and the way they spoke about people like protesters as if they were some kind of monster out there if you're such a constitutionalist and if you are defending our rights so much, then maybe you forgot all about what happened at the stamp tax uh, revolts, which led to the freaking uh, 1776 uh, Declaration of Independence. The stamp tax, they went out burning people's houses down, making effigies, killing tax collectors, running them out of town. They did all of that. Well, you know, Max, I'm trying to figure out, though, and and you, you can explain it uh, to me, but what what's the connection here to slavery? Well, we're talking about white supremacy and slavery. Uh, when I say the connection to here to slavery is primarily when they start referring to people who are out there protesting these injustices like us as enemies of good Americans. It's very much a pro-slavery uh, 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 representation on video saying that, you know, we don't have any legitimate gripes. We're not being enslaved. You're not selling our children. You're not arresting and incarcerating kids in New York for $353,000 a year. We're not saying any of that, right? Our points are not legitimate. Instead, we're just economic terrorists. So that's how this connects to slavery for me. It's really defining what we are for their listeners and supporters. Right. So... I see that you posted two different videos. I'm not sure if it's the same video. Uh, Bill Moyers calls it, he he titles it, NRA Issues Call for White Supremacy and Armed Insurrection. Violence of Lies is the video that just plays her. Which one? Um, The other one I posted. 
The Violence of Lies. That's the okay. name of the video. The Violence of Lies. Apparently, we're liars. None of this is going on. Okay. Do you want me to play it? Yes, sir. Okay. This is Dana Loach. She is actually um, has worked in conservative uh, media. And so that's her name, Dana Loach. She's speaking on behalf of the NRA, who has yet to say anything about uh, the legally, uh, the legal gun owner, uh, Philando Castile. But they'll come out talking about this, right? Okay. Yeah, they said it in this video, basically. Here we go. They use their media to assassinate real news. They use their schools to teach children that their president is another Hitler. They use their movie stars and singers and comedy shows and award shows to repeat their narrative over and over again. And then they use their ex-president to endorse the resistance, all to make them march, make them protest, make them scream racism and sexism and xenophobia and homophobia, to smash windows, burn cars, shut down interstates and airports, bully and terrorize the law-abiding, until the only option left is for the police to do their jobs and stop the madness. And when that happens, they'll use it as an excuse for their outrage. The only way we stop this, the only way we save our country and our freedom is to fight this violence of lies with the clenched fist of truth. I'm the National Rifle Association of America, and I'm freedom's safest place. That's, there you have it. You heard it in your own words. Is it, have you heard this before, Scotty? No. Um, and I mean, I've seen it. Um, in terms of see, saw, seeing people post it and whatnot. But sometimes, Max, I don't care to hear their garbage because I know it's garbage. Now, you know, um, so, but I'm not saying, you know, that anything about people who, who watch it, but at sometimes we had to stop helping them spread their propaganda. Now, in, in, in terms of this program, we're analyzing it so I don't look at it as we're helping to spread their propaganda so a lot of this stuff man I just you know I just I ignore it I just ignore it. I don't ignore it well, I acknowledge I it ignore it because in the 1800s the most hated people in America were abolitionists then mulattoes and then Africans that was the order of hate they had it going on because the abolitionists threaten their entire lifestyles yeah so listen we know that the NRA and look I support second amendment rights I am not some some uh, uh, person who wants to ban firearms in this country there's a reason why they made it unlawful for going back to the Virginia colonies I was just reading this last night uh, past laws making it unlawful for even free black colonists to own firearms and that's that enslaved victims couldn't have firearms so I support I support second amendment rights okay but you know for them to be talking all this freedom stuff it's just propaganda when you're ignoring the fact that this is slavery and slavery was never abolished and it says so in the supreme document of the United States the supreme law of the land and you know a lot of times you know these things start off peacefully and they send in the agent provocateurs 
Okay, so they're not even taking that into consideration. And most of the people are peaceful. We can't control everybody. These are public demonstrations. And so, you know, but again, when you, like you pointed out the history of violent protests in this nation, when people feel like their legitimate protests are not being heard, they're, they're being denied their constitutional right to petition their government for grievances, then they get frustrated and they turn to violence and I also I don't like to quote you know some people but the truth is the truth no matter who tell it like Malcolm X said and I'm probably you know paraphrasing here but John F. Kennedy said that you know those who who make peaceful revolution uh, impossible you know are the ones who are chief responsible for the violence because human beings this country hey just yesterday was July the 4th they were shooting what? Fireworks. What are those fireworks representative of? Missiles. Firearms. So, you know, the contradictions in this country. We deplore violence, but we celebrate the violent liberation of this so-called nation, even though, you know, I, I'm not going to go into what I talked about at the beginning in the fraud. But, you know, it, it's just propaganda. These people are liars they have an agenda uh like was said yesterday on tando radio show they had a special guest chico stick he's a puerto rican um a good friend of david who hosts the show and he talked about how the system uses racism to divide the people so that you know you create two sides instead of everybody being on the right side so that's all I got to say about about them, man. They've yet to say anything about Philando Castile. I think it's important that the NRA, this big, powerful lobbyist organization in the United States of America, representing the Second Amendment, decided to label all of us out there protesting for our rights and civil liberties as enemies. I really find that uh to be a very prophetic sign of what may come at any moment when you start calling for basically uh, people to get armed and take up arms against fellow Americans. And that, you're doing it publicly with no way. shame. No shame whatsoever. No shame. And this and is why I've said, about- Max, this is why I said, look, I appreciate our guests saying, you know, we should keep our movement peaceful. And we are peaceful. Okay? We are we don't be telling people to go out there and, and commit violence, but I have said though, it took great violence during a civil war to even address the issue of slavery. So it may just take that because some people are intent on holding on to the institution of slavery, and and hey, they, we may that may be all we're left with to finally abolish slavery. So I say all options are on the table. I'm not encouraging anybody out here to go out there and commit acts of violence, but at the same time, if these people out here are going to call for acts of violence against us, then guess what? I'm into self-defense too, armed self-defense. You got to be wary when you start hearing people like this start using these superfluous names like they and them and you people. 
those are usually clues that they're talking races and they're talking about specific races. And then she talked about, you know, how they uh, are calling real news fake. And these are people that frequent Fox News. So basically they're saying Fox News is the only real news. <laughs> and anybody that's attacking that is attacking real news. I saw her on Tucker's show and, uh, and on Hannity and a couple of others where they were really just, you know, reveling in the idea that they got everybody so upset with these words from the NRA, represented through the NRA. The NRA did not condemn anything she had to say, and she's talking about an armed damn rebellion. If that was a black man from the Black Panthers up there talking that same shit, he'd be dead by now. You know, I, I will say that, again, I, this is my first time hearing it, but I could ascertain what was being said by everybody's reaction to it. And I saw more than one person say, I'm a lifelong card member in, member of the NRA. And this is not right. And this is a call for an attack on fellow Americans. So I just want to say that everybody who's who supports gun rights are not okay with this. We had this point in there, Scotty, where she was talking about the protesters shutting down the streets. Well, here in South Carolina, they did that. They shut down the highway here. And one of the EMTs tweeted out on his personal account that he was going to run these niggas over if they didn't get out of his damn way. And he meant it because they have done that. They have run us over at these various protests. And there's videos, you could just Google it, protesters ran over and got away with it. So, you know, this this is like when they called for... When they when when Trump and I forget the woman with the blonde hair that does all the racist talking, but when they started talking about how Mexicans and blacks were raping your women and stealing your jobs and they were criminals and all this. Dylan Roof ended up killing people, nine of them, and damn near quoting Trump verbatim and why he was killing them. Yeah. What do you, you think something like this is gonna do? Yeah, but I also, you know, I wanna keep the focus on slavery. Um, again, racism, and, and I'm not even going to say in my opinion, but according to my research, racism is a symptom of slavery. So what I'm hearing is the same demonization that they were making of Africans when, when they made slavery for Africans only. I'm hearing the same kind of demonization that I've read about that were in the papers and people were giving speeches and calling these people beasts, animals, not human, deserving of their ill treatment. So that's what I'm that's what I'm hearing. A justification for, me, for slavery. To slavery cuz we're coming to Washington and it's the millions for prisoners human rights march on Washington D.C. If what she's saying is true, then we're the ones being demonized, and we should expect to see all these NRA gold card carrying, rifle toting people there in Washington D.C. waiting for us. Well, I believe in um, uh, positive speaking. Uh, you know, be wary of everything. Be prepared for everything. But I'm not going. I'm not going to speak that in, into existence. We're going to have a successful, peaceful, large gathering, the largest gathering of abolitionists since before 1865. That's the hope. But you got to keep in mind this, Scotty. We're not in complete control of whether or not things are peaceful. 
Well, Max, oh, oh, I understand like, that, Max, but I don't want I don't want to scare anyone from coming out. Neither do I. I. I'm just okay. I see where you're going. Let's move on to the next story. What's we got, on? What uh, we got? Actually, we got about thirty minutes left. Thirty minutes left. You want to take our break a little early and then get into our regular scheduled segments, or is there another story that you want to? share. I have like dozens of them here. I'm going to try to get them on new abolitionist radio so people can see them because some of them are very important, like the young lady whose father was killed by the LAPD police department and now they're telling her she can't even view her father's body for four weeks and there's a cover-up going on Uh, and a few other stories like that. Fort Worth police officer is talking about how the revolution might be expected sooner than you think, saying that he's been uh, looking at these police, this is a police officer saying it, and that people should go out and arm themselves, much like the NRA is saying. <laughs> but yeah. there's a bunch of them, I'll get them out there. Was there anything you wanted to cover in particular before? No, we, we could we could go ahead and take the break a couple of minutes, about five minutes earlier and because, and you know, time goes by, fi- goes by fast, but this has been an information-packed uh, program tonight. Uh, again, share this, especially for if you got people in Alabama, please share this and let them hear uh, from uh, Mr. George um, so that they will be informed that they do have an abolitionist candidate who's going to be on the ballot. So, yeah, let's go ahead and yes, take sir. this break. All right. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. We're going to take a break real quick. When we come back, if you want to uh talk to us got a question or comment you can call us at 866-510-9025 we'll be right back after these messages Black Talk Media Project launched the digital radio platform, Black Talk Radio Network, the first such platform created to serve the black community specifically. Black Talk Radio Network has grown with a variety of radio hosts, digital radio stations, and podcasters. Web analytics say Black Talk Radio, the platform, has an online reach that ranks it among the top independent black media platforms in the world. All of this is possible because of financial contributions to the nonprofit Black Talk Media Project. If you love the work we do and the voices and perspectives we bring to you every day make a donation today to ensure that black talk radio is here in the future black talk radio is new black media for the new millennium hey man new abolitionists yes sir yeah before we get started shout out to the free alabama movement guy can't do a show about alabama without mentioning those abolitionists who are That's current right. victims of slavery. So shout out to you brothers, uh, Kinetic and, and everybody else. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, indeed. Swift Justice too. Shout out to them and uh, all the people that you're, you know, getting together to make a difference in their community, even from the inside. Uh, yeah, indeed, man. It's a lot of stories I had to get out there today, so I'll just be putting the links up, so make sure you take a look at them and check them out. Uh, in the meantime, there was just one single story that I want to squeeze in there, and it's not even from in this country. It's just I, I just want to point out to you the results of our actions and, and what we see come back. If this can happen there, there's no reason why you can't see it here. You know, and that's regards to this article from the Real Africa 
Migrantsrights.com, where it says migrants from West Africa being sold in Libyan slave markets. Now, Scotty has reported on this a number of times, and I reported on it from the very beginning, uh, the invasion of Libya all the way up until now. And I remember the images I've seen where black Libyans were held in cages and being forced to eat flags, like literally being forced to eat flags. And eventually it turned into a renewed slave trade again in Africa. So here's some of the story. I'll read it to you. West African migrants are being bought and sold openly in modern-day slave markets in Libya. Survivors have told the UN agency helping them return home. Traff people passed passing through Libya have previously reported violence, violence, extortion, and slave labor. But the new testimony from the International Organization for Migration suggests that the trade in human beings has become so normalized, so normalized, that people are being traded in public. Just put that image in your mind. The North Africans nation is a major exit point for refugees from Africa trying to take boats to Europe. But since the overthrow of autocratic leader Muhammad Gaddafi, the vast, sparsely populated country has slid into violent chaos and migrants with little cash and usually no papers are particularly vulnerable. And it goes on to tell you the stories of some of the people that are being caught up and sold publicly as slaves in the open markets and people are coming to buy them, human beings. And this is the results of our own labors in Libya. And not from a Republican party, from a Democratic president, Barack Obama. Scotty? Um, yes. Um, this, again, have as we have always tried to point out to people that slavery is a global issue. The GO group, the private prison companies, don't just operate here in the United States. It's a global issue. And I believe that much of the world takes its cues from this country. So if you out there talking about, oh, this the freest nation on the face of the planet and we're the shining light of democracy and you still practicing slavery, then what do you think these other nations are going to do? They're going, oh, if they can get away with it, we can too. And, you know, that is why we have people in the nation of Ghana who have reached out to us and invited us to come there and help them uh, see the abolitionist movement there. So as you're right, Max, we um, I have reported on this issue. Um, unfortunately, a lot of uh, people in corporate media, and I don't care what the call letters are. I don't care if you they got a so-called a liberal outlet or a so-called conservative outlet. I did not see much coverage of this. Okay, I didn't hear Joy Ann Reed talking about it on AM Joy. She didn't say, oh, this is a travesty. Uh, after Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton got through overthrowing Muammar Gaddafi, they just stood back and let it turn into a hellhole to the point that they're now uh, practicing slavery and got slave markets. So, um, yeah, this is a global issue. Listen, abolitionists, people are counting on us all over the world all right we in slavery here people will follow follow us around the world indeed they are already joining the abolitionist movement that's all i got to say on that story max 
Yeah, you're absolutely right, Scotty. They are waiting for us to do what we need to do here, which is why I'm so disgusted when I hear people talking about the 25th Amendment but can't pucker up their lips and talk about the 13th Amendment. And, uh, you know, I'm talking about Oberman, for instance, Mr. Peace at the end. You never have nothing to say about that, all of you. It's always 25th Amendment, Second Amendment, uh, what at First Amendment, but you never notice the 13th Amendment like it magically can't come out your mouth or into your head. And an example of that will be the raw story where, you know, uh, yesterday, the president, Trump, recited the Declaration of Independence, probably the first time he's ever read it in his life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Same thing I would suspect with the Constitution. And some of the supporters were pretty ridiculous, implying that uh, because NPR was tweeting it out line by line as he was saying it, that they were pushing people towards the revolution because they'd never read the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> you know, it's just really ridiculous watching the people's reactions to it. So they're saying things like, so NPR is calling for a revolution? Interesting way to condone the violence while trying to sound patriotic. Your implications are clear. These are the type of things that people were saying because they have never read the Declaration of Independence. They've never read the Constitution. They've never read the Bill of Rights. And they don't know that the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal with great, certain unalienable rights. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. Declaration of Independence, 1776. Exercise your rights. Well, we'll get into our first segment of our final three for the evening, which will be our... Uh, Pardon me, uh, I'm having a brain fart at the moment. Uh, for freedom's sake, a history of rebellion. And today, we will be remembering the New Orleans Forgotten Slave Revolt, Revolt of 1811. And this is by Dan Rasmussen, American Uprising author. Scotty, uh, I'll start unless there was anything you had to add. No, sir. All right. 200 years ago, this past Saturday, three slaves gathered in a small rundown cabin on a plantation about 30 miles upriver from New Orleans. Charles Delondes and this was the son of an enslaved woman and a French planter. Harry, Harry Kenner, an unassuming 25-year-old carpenter, and Quamana, a warrior captured in the militant Asante kingdom and imported to Louisiana. On January 8, 1811, these three brave men along with eight other slave leaders, launched the largest slave revolt in American history, rallying an army of nearly 500 slaves to fight and die for freedom. No slave revolt, not Matt Turner, not John Brown, has rivaled the 1811 New Orleans revolt in terms of the number of participants or the number of slaves slaughtered in the aftermath. The revolt was a meticulously planned, politically sophisticated, and ethically diverse and a fundamental challenge to the system of plantation slavery. Dressed in military uniform and chanting on to New Orleans, they rallied a rugged army of around 500 slaves to attempt to conquer the city, kill all its white inhabitants, and establish a black republic on the shores of the Mississippi. In a dramatic battle in the cane fields, the slave army faced off against the twin forces of the American military and a hastily assembled planter militia. The blacks were not intimidated by this army 
and formed themselves in line and fired for as long as they had ammunition, wrote one observer. But the slaves' ammunition did not last long, and the battle was brief. Soon the planter militia broke the slave line and the slaughter began. The planters, supported by U.S. military, captured Charles Delanders, chopped off his hands, broke his thighs, and then roasted him on a pile of straw. Over the next few days, they executed and beheaded more than 100 slaves, putting their heads on poles and dangling their dismembered corpses from the gates of New Orleans. Their heads, which decorate our levee all the way up the coast, look like crows sitting on long poles, wrote one traveler. The rotting corpses were grim reminders of who owned who and just where true power resided. The American officials and French planters then sought to cover up the true story of the revolt to dismiss, dismiss the bold actions of the slave army as irrelevant and trivial and write this missive, massive uprising out of the record books. They succeeded, and in doing so, they laid the groundwork for one of the most remarkable moments of historical amnesia in our national memory. The revolutionaries of 1811 were heroes who deserve a place in our national memory. Their actions are a testament to the strength of the ideals of freedom and equality and every man's equal claim to those basic rights. Their acts are an inspiration to all people who strive for freedom. On the 200th anniversary of the start of this great revolt, we must listen to their voices and study their stories, for only through understanding the passions and beliefs that resonated through their through the slave quarters can we begin to comprehend the true history of Louisiana and with it, the nation. Daniel Remison. We here at New Abolitionist Radio remember the uprising of 1811 in New Orleans. Salute. Salute. Well, um, Word, I, we got an abolitionist in profile. Um, our abolitionist in profile before we get to our uh, writer of the Underground Railroad. Uh, our abolitionist in profile tonight is Sarah Mapp Douglas, 1806 to 1882. Uh, Sarah Mapp Douglas was an abolitionist, writer, and educator, the freeborn daughter of Robert and Grace Douglas, a distinguished black abolitionist family in Philadelphia. She joined her mother, Grace, as a founding member of the biracial Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society, also known as PFAS, in 1833. Throughout her abolitionist career, Douglas also served as recording secretary, librarian, and manager for the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society. She contributed to both the Liberator and the Anglo-African magazine, became a fundraiser for the black press, and gave numerous public lectures. She ran a school for free black children in Philadelphia. A passionate educator, she also taught black children and adults in New York. In 1853, she took over the girls' preparatory department at the Philadelphia Institute for Colored Youth, offering courses in literature, science, and anatomy. Douglas maintained a long and close friendship with prominent white abolitionists Sarah and Angelina Grimke, daughters of South Carolina slaveholders. In her letters to Sarah Grimke, Douglas revealed the pain of encountering race prejudice among fellow Quakers. Grace Douglas and daughter Sarah, along with white feminist Lucretia Mott, 
were often able to persuade white organizations to include a black abolitionist perspective. Thus, as historian Janice Sumler Lewis points out, they became not just well-meaning ladies, but an aggressive, persistent force for change in the Philadelphia area. And the new abolitionist, uh, new abolitionist radio salutes Sarah Mapp Douglas. Salute, man! That sounds like what I'd be out here doing. Like I just be pounding them. I don't care who you are. You got to include this voice. If you're not including this voice, you just you know talking in an echo room because everybody agrees that you need to reform. You got to have an abolitionist voice in there. You know what? It also reminds me of the diversity of the new abolitionist movement. All right? Because as she said, they work to make these white organizations uh, um, include a black abolitionist perspective. It just reminds me of, you know, both of us going down to Rock Hill, South Carolina and, and speaking uh, to the supporters of, of David Coma, um, who was running for Congress on the Green Party at, on the Green Party's uh, platform. And, um, you know, he's another person who was very convicted in his in, in his knowledge about slavery never being abolished. And of course, we had him on the program. But, you know, this this movement, when they talk about the press, what are we? We the press. What is Black Talk Radio Network but a media organization or a media platform? What is New Abolitionist Radio? For five years strong now, we have been producing weekly podcasts bringing abolitionists and information related to the abolition of slavery. We see this all throughout history of abolitionists, the important role of the media, the important role of making alliances. And I know it's some people that think that black people can solve this problem all by themselves. I say to you, if we could, we would have already. Or if we can, what we waiting for? So, you know, uh, it, it's not, I'm, un, I, you know, it's not, I'm a black, I'm a black person. I wouldn't have started a black talk radio network if I didn't, uh, um, if I wasn't a part of the black community and I'm trying to address the issue of the lack of black voices in national media by giving people a platform where they can come and speak openly without the threat of being uh, thrown off. But when it comes to something as serious as slavery, you know what? I will take help from wherever it comes from. So that's just me. I, you know, other people are entitled to their views and they're entitled to move the way they move. But this is how I move. I'll talk to any, like Malcolm X said, I work with anybody as long as they're trying to change this miserable condition on the face of this earth. Max. Um, indeed, you're right. And, you know, it's very reflective of Frederick Douglass's words where he spoke of the emancipation as a stupendous fraud in 1888 and said very much the same thing, that he will take help from any quarter to get his people out of the wretched condition that they find themselves in. Uh, and that's something that we all can agree on. We can work together on this, but it is going to divide this country in half. And that's something that we just have to recognize. And the half is going to be pro-slavery and anti-slavery. 
Just as simple as that. That simple, Max. That simple. You either for slavery or you against it. That's all I need to know. Yeah, there is no middle ground, no in between. If you're sitting on the fence, you're pro slavery. If you have nothing to say, you're pro slavery. If you're still taking these paychecks and you know that you got money invested in private prisons and stocks like that, you're pro slavery. It's it's you you don't even have to say I'm pro slavery. Your actions or lack of will speak for you. Well, our final segment will be our rider of the 21st century underground railroad. We try to remember these brothers and sisters who are walking free from these hell holes after spending years and years in prisons for crimes that they never had anything to do with. And today from Los Angeles, our rider of the 21st century underground railroad is Andrew Leander Wilson. A broad smile on his face and no bitterness in his heart clasped hands with his family on his first day of freedom Thursday after spending 32 years in prison for murder he denied committing. Wilson, 62, was released from the L.A. County Men's Central Jail downtown into a sea of cameras and cheers and applause from the university law students who worked to free him. This is unbelievable. This is unbelievable, Wilson said. Wilson maintained his innocence since his arrest in 1984 for the stabbing death of Christopher Hansen, 21, in Los Angeles. A day earlier, Supreme Court Judge Laura Priver ordered Wilson released after prosecutors conceded he did not get a free, a fair trial. Wilson said his 96-year-old mother, Margie Davis, who lives in St. Louis, was his fiercest advocate. My mother was the backbone, Wilson said. She was a 96-year-old pit bull. He plans to go to St. Louis to visit her soon as he can. And his mother says... She can't believe she's going to see him after three decades. I prayed for what I thought was the impossible, Davis told KABC TV by phone. I prayed for his release, and evidently, it wasn't impossible. It's been granted me. Loyola Law School's Project for the Innocent, which fought for Wilson's release, pointed to numerous due process violations. It's been a nightmare, but I survived and got to the end of the road, Wilson said. Wearing a red Loyola shirt, Wilson held hands with his sister and daughter. His 15-year-old granddaughter was by their sides. Wilson said he holds no bitterness because that would be a waste of time. Believe it or not, I think I'm all right upstairs, he said, drawing laughter from his family members. I still have a parent, Wilson's daughter, Katrina Burks, 43, of Muskegon, Michigan. It's been a long 32 years, and I'm glad it's over. I stayed hopeful all the way, said Gwen Wilson, 49, of Inglewood, California. She was 14 when her brother was sent to prison. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio salute you, brother, and say welcome to freedom, Andrew Leander Wilson. Welcome. Welcome to freedom. And thank you to all those who assisted him. Man, 32 years for something you never did. And this happens so often, and it's always the same stories, prosecutorial misconduct, evidence being hidden, uh, public defenders who uh, fail to do their job in any way, shape, or form, uh, jailhouse snitches, and prosecutors listening in on defenders' conversations and things like that. It always seems to be the same story. Even the evidence that they get from, like, you know, uh, the hair samples and DNA samples are often faulty. They got thousands of rapes kids sitting in 
uh, shelves right now waiting for people who've been in prison 20, 30 years to just have somebody go look and check the DNA. All right. There you go, Scotty. We're about uh, 10 minutes out of the end. Is there anything that you want to bring uh, up before we got to our final comments? Yes. I, I um, We will soon be launching our fundraiser uh, for New Abolitionist Radio um, so that uh, we can fund a abol- what's the word for it? Uh, abolitionist contingent from South Carolina and North Carolina. We want to take a contingent of abolitionists from the Carolinas to Washington, D.C. Um, the Black Talk Media Project, if we had it in our budget to fund it all, um, I wouldn't be asking anybody for anything. If there was any grants I could apply for to fund, you know, our trip up there to the largest gathering of abolitionists in the 21st century, um, you know, I wouldn't ask. But I just want to let people know we uh, will soon be launching that fundraiser. I just got to get the final figures down. Unfortunately, our abolitionist brother, Johanan, will not be able to join us because um, we were looking to fly him to Charlotte, pick him up in Charlotte and, and drive the rest of the way. Um, but uh, just be on the lookout uh, with that. And I just hope that people can contribute uh, what they can. Um, Max is going to be a speaker. Um, I'm going to be a moderator and I'm also going to uh, assist with setting up uh, the platform in the park. But we want to take as many people as will come with us uh, to um, we want to like rent. What do we want, Max? Uh, uh, Rent a, a van or something? Yes, we're going to get an eight-passenger van because according to what I've seen so far, we'll have eight people riding with us out of South Carolina. And uh, we'll want to go into Maryland, just outside of D.C., and get a hotel for the evening uh, for us to get there and then come back. Right. And we'll come back after the uh, march is over. So, um, yeah. So that be on the lookout for that. And, of course, if you can, attend yourself especially if you're in the area like some of the other uh, Black Talk Radio hosts. Shout out to Code Breakers. They were on last night. Um, There's three hosts um, that live in that area, and they told me that they will come out um, and and support it. Um, They um, do recognize that slavery was never abolished, and they have been very supportive of our abolitionist efforts. So hope to see them out there. And if you live in the area or if you're able to afford a cross country trip, please join us August the 19th Lafayette park in Washington, DC. That's across from the white house. The March itself, I believe starts at what? 1130 or 12 max. Um, yes. Uh, all the information can be found at I am we Ubuntu.com. U-B-U-N-T-U. Okay, and and so um, it'll last up until 5 o'clock p.m. that evening, and then we will call it a day. So please come out, make make history with us. When was the last time there was abolitionist protest? It's been a long time, brother, since the last time we got bamboozled. All right, well... Um, was that your closing statements? Because we still got a few. What time do you have? Um, um, we got about four, 
four minutes, but I mean, we can wrap it up okay. early. We got uh, okay. Right. Well, no, I was just going to say we got mind, body, and spirit coming up um, at ten o'clock p.m. So, uh, Black Talk Radio listeners, stay tuned for that live programming. Always interesting program with those sisters. Indeed. Well, I guess uh, I got something that I can wrap it up with. I just want to make a couple comments. First of all, I want to thank Stacy George, Stacy George, and his wife for being here this evening and sharing uh, their understanding and knowledge and intent with us here on New Abolitionist Radio. We wish them all the luck in the world, and we'll do what we can to support them in their efforts uh, to take this exception clause out of the Thirteenth Amendment to ban private for-profit prison industries from this country and to end slavery forever. So thank you so much, and indeed, we'll work side by side with anybody that wants to make a change. There is nobody (laughs) that is uh, unable to do something about this today. Listen, I'm a slavery abolitionist. I'm hardcore with mine and stubborn as F-A-W-K. I know what I know, and I can present a logical case to anybody able to use logic and reason with a willingness to consider my argument as much as they want me to consider theirs. We can build. Sometimes I can even get through to the thoughts and feelings squads. I'll cross all kinds of aisles to build bridges backwards. But there is something I am immovable on. It is either legalized slavery or it's not. There is no in-between or another side of the story. If you have heard the evidence and find yourself in full agreement, then the last thing I would expect to see is this issue on the bottom of your ship to do list. Nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscious stupidity, Martin Luther King Jr. And we want you to remember that abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know peace. Peace. Rise up, 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 just lift your eyes up, let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times if it's time, rise up, rise up, when death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up, when famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord anger is no longer feared if his protection is gone and your enemies are near if you've seen the seas spill over and the mountains shake break and fall if the moon ever turns blood red and you can't see the sun at all rise up 